back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Philippe de la Matroc, and Ina Corio. And we have been reading the Faith Trilogy, which I think if you put all three stories together is the longest story I have. I'd have to do the math to find out because everything where I keep the you know amount of words and stuff, I always have them as separate stories. So it's hard to say without doing math. Um, Otherwise, I'd say it's probably a close one between Alien, Alien Us by Philippe and Ospianchim by Gabrielle and Faith, the trilogy. But we are ready to end the trilogy. We have read 17 chapters over three stories. There is one left, and it is a shorter one than most of the others. Whereas uh, chapter or Faith Part Three Peace had some of the longer chapters, except for of course <laughs> Chapter Five, which was twenty four thousand words long. <laughs> that was very very long. Could possibly have been two chapters, but I think it ended where it needed to end, and you know that's where it ended. So we are ready for Chapter Eighteen of Faith Part Three Peace. This may be the last episode I have for a while because I don't know what else to do here. <laughs> um, unless I think of a topic to speak on or find a guest to talk to. Because I will only have one short story left to read. We have gone through everything that isn't a whip at this point except for my newest Bucky Barnes story, and I don't quite want to read it alone. I have three other episodes that have three or four Bucky Barnes stories, and so I'd like to have a little bit more of the series before I read Settling Scores. So, be Settling Scores and a couple more, maybe one for... Um, the making of The Winter Soldier, and another one or two for Pieces to a Puzzle. So, and by the way, that is my half whip. I kind of counted as having four and a half, because even though I have a Bucky Barnes whip, which is an AU story, um, alternate universe or canon divergent, um, I also have this series that has completed stories, but they are all linked in a series. And that series isn't over. So the stories are complete, but the series is not. So it doesn't quite count as a full whip in my book. Because I could stop here, but I don't plan to. I think there's other stories to be told. So we have settling scores on the back burner for this podcast. Not on the back burner to write. It is written, but for the podcast, it is on the back burner. The benefit of talking with guests is that we get another viewpoint and, and you know, we can learn from each other that way. Um, I'm a very different writer. I'm a contrary writer. <laughs> Had a whole episode on this. I, you know, kind of go back and forth with this on my, our, uh, my 
meetup group that I'm in, KC Storytellers, because we talk about different literary functions and different ways to write and themes and all this. And I don't think of themes when I go to write a story. I just don't. I think of a scenario. I think of a dialogue. I think of something, a plot, a question. I don't think of a theme. It's like, what are you trying to, you know, what's the point of the story? The point of the story is to get the story told. <laughs> I just don't think in theme when I write. What is the theme been of faith? I don't know. Faith? <laughs> Maybe the theme of faith is faith. Faith alone can mean many different things. Faith in what? So, um, I have faith in Jesus. I have faith in God. I have faith in my ability to write. I have faith in my that my husband will be faithful to me. There's many different ways we can have faith. Um, so, faith is very broad in that sense. So... Is it the theme of faith? Maybe. I didn't set out to write it because I thought, gee, I'm going to write a story about faith. <laughs> or I'm going to write a story about not having faith. No, I was getting ready for bed in the bathroom, brushing my teeth and all that stuff, washing my face, when I heard Bashir confront Cisco with, I know why the Romulans joined the war, and he backed him into the wall and Cisco was afraid of him. And I was like, oh my God. How did he get like this? And so I decided to put him in a in solitary confinement for six months. And how did I do that? I put him in a cave. All of that came from that confrontation. That very important scene in Faith Part One Hope. That confrontation between Bashir and Cisco. It even wounded Cisco a little bit, right? I mean, it was, whoa. <laughs> when I heard it, I was just wowed. And that's also why I say I write by magic, because how did that scene come to me? How did that dialogue suddenly appear in my brain? fully formed. I didn't decide how it went. It just kind of happened. How is that? To me, that's magic. This, some people call it a muse. Some people, I, I don't know. I didn't set out to write faith. I set out to find out how Bashir got into that point where he could be that guy and then what it took to get him there and then where he goes from there and that's what faith became I didn't write by theme I wanted to see where this went I wanted to see how he got there and I wanted to see where it went and I had to write it that's magic to me Yes, it takes work. I have to 
find the parts in between it. I have to make the scenes come alive. I have to write up to that point. <laughs> when I get scenes like that from the magic, I don't have to change them much at all. That's why it's important to take notes because once I started actually writing that scene, it wrote itself almost exactly as I had imagined it. That to me is magic. And the magic is always a better decider of what's a good story. The magic is always a better maker of scenes than me. The writing or the magic is the better writer and I am thankful for it. But how do you teach someone to have magic? How do you teach someone to hear a dialogue or to see a scene and then wonder how that story came to be? I don't know. It's not so easy. It's easier to teach that stories have these formats and you got to have this in every scene or you got to have that and Every sentence needs to be slaved to the plot. I don't write that way. I never have. And I never will. And maybe that means I'm never going to be a professional writer. I've come to terms with that. The stories that my brain generates happen inside fandom universes with fandom characters, so they're not original. They're not pro-fiction material because of that, but that doesn't mean they're bad. I think I'm a great writer, and I'm not saying that to be big-headed. I've got the feedback to back it up. I've got the awards to back it up because I have that magic that gives me the good stories and helps me write them. Some people look back at their early stories and cringe. If you were to dig out some notebook somewhere that has the stories I wrote in high school, I might cringe. I think even the short stories that I wrote in my creative writing minor in college cringe a little. They aren't great. But when I started writing, if it's not one thing, and I took the year that I was in Europe to finish it, that's when I became good. It won an award. I was hooked. And then Osvanshim came out. And I think Osvanshim is like my magnum opus. I think it's the best thing I have ever written. Long form. First Consideration is one of the best short stories I have ever written, but Immortal is right up there with it. Healing Hurts is right up there with it. I would say Ode to Legolas is the best filk I ever wrote, but then it's the only fic I ever wrote, so it kind of fits. <laughs> well, it's easy then, then to be the best, isn't it? It's 
the only. Well, I think I think the magic is a great thing, and I'm happy to have it. I'm happy that it's given me these stories and that I can share them with people. In the old days of fan fiction, you had to mimeograph. You know, there's basically it's like carbon copies, only they're purple ink. And you had to mimeograph those and then pass them around in the mail. Now we can post them on the internet. And people will find them either by finding my own site, which is probably a far less amount of people. Fanfiction.net came out in 1998. I started posting there. It became the place to find fanfiction. I then, when I had a Palm Pilot, I put all my stories on Memoware. In Memoware, they were all in tiny little files that you could you know, put on your Palm Pilot and read them. And I had a lot of people reading them. But because they could put them on their Palm Pilot, which was kind of cool. AO3 came by later and fanfiction.net kind of went downhill. It's like just covered in ads now, which is sad to see it like that. I don't want to read there. I still post there because people still find my stories there. And... All the existing stats and feedback is still there. So, for instance, Faith Part 3 Peace has 16,544 hits on fanfiction.net as of last Sunday. On AO3, it has 755. Well, it's been up on fanfiction.net since 2004. So it's had a lot more time to gather stories or gather readers. Plus, that's closer to the time that DS9 was on the air. So there were more, there was more interest. As DS9 has come into favor again, some of my stories have been, you know, picking up in, in popularity, which is cool. The other thing I think I do well is I am a rare writer of fanfic in that I am not a romance writer. Some people go to fanfiction.net and AO3 looking for gen, general fiction drama, angst, possibly horror, not romantic pairings. Some people filter out romantic pairings. I do, for the most part. There's a few I'll bother with, but I don't like romance novels either. Those aren't my cup of tea. I want drama. I want angst. I want mystery. I want suspense. I want oomph. I want my stories to be as good as any Star Trek book you buy, buy in a bookstore. And they're not about romance. They're not about Dr. Bashir, an original female character. They're not about 
Dr. Bashir and Garrick. Yeah, some people are into that. Okay. It's not how I see Dr. Bashir. It's kind of how I see Garrick, but that's all right. I don't write romance in DS9. It's not my thing. I do, oh, Philippe does write romance in Alien Us, but these two characters fell, up, fell in love on opposite sides of a planet through a telepathic connection. <laughs> they could be kind of sappy that way, but they weren't touching each other. They weren't seeing each other. They were only hearing each other in their minds. Only at the very end did we get any touching, any seeing, and it was just, like, incredible for them because they hadn't. They fell in love without it, thinking they would never see each other again. That they would never be able to touch each other. Philippe has yet to write a sex scene in that story. In fact, <laughs> they had their first little date there. He got a little break from... Uh, from Bay to go to the galley to have some breakfast with Hoshi and had a heart attack and now is on Earth while Hoshi is away on a mission. So they're farther now than they were in Alien Us, farther apart. Finding home is not about that romance. Finding home is about healing trauma. And only then... Will he be better able to have a romance? Because right now, he is hardly sane, <laughs> barely sane. And it stems from childhood trauma as well as everything that happened in Alien Us. Now, there is uh, one sex scene that Philippe has written in... Momentous, Final Fantasy XV, um, Ignis and Aranea. It's mild, but it's there, chapter 23. It's mentioned other times, but it's not explicit like it is in chapter 23. Mildly explicit, I should say. Um quite frankly, I'm a prude. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, my uh, five, six, the six of us, the siblings, I'm the pr most prudish. And then yet I could have the talk with my children, like nothing. It, it, it was easy, but I am a prude. So, it's not generally the thing I want to read. It's not generally the thing I want to write. But in 10 years, with this romance budding for 10 years, you know, eventually things were going to get physical. And they did. It hasn't uh, messed up that romance at all. Um... It's just not my thing. And some people who go out and read stories, it's not their thing either. So they come and they find my stories. And they're, you know, they like them. 
there's a um, person who read Aftermath who was very glad to find my story because all they could find was Daniel's Zussman romances when Daniel's has Hazel back home having his child. It just didn't seem like he would be gay. <laughs> or seeking out a romance with Zussman. I mean, cannot two men have a brotherly love for each other? Is that not possible? I think it is. Honestly, I think women and men can be platonically friends too. Not everything leads to sex, people. So, you know, if you want to read about, you know, Zussman's time in Berga and after, that's what Aftermath is about. It's not about romance. Although, there's hints that he's got his eye on somebody back home at the end. And Aiello does get married. So, but, you know, it's off screen. So, <laughs> he's just married in the epilogue. So, um, you know, life happens, but it doesn't always have to end up on the page. Anyway, let's finish Faith. Let's do it. Faith, chapter 18, coming up. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Faith, Part 3, Peace, by Gabrielle Lawson. Chapter 18. All they could do was sit back and wait and pray. Jordan had left the bridge to gather with the other Christians for that task. There were some 400 down in the cargo hold. Garulos, Riker had learned, had been taken up to the makeshift sickbay. There were no other doctors among the prisoners, but there were some med techs and nurses. Riker hoped they could do something for him. Bashir was more lucid than he'd been since he left Enterprise and was handling the helm with quiet competence. It wasn't really hard since they were mostly going in one heading. The ship was too large and unwieldy for tight, evasive maneuvers. While, amazingly enough, the Dominion ships had first not fired and then had missed at least 20 shots in a row, they had obviously worked out the kinks in their targeting sensors. Riker figured they had taken the convoy by surprise when the ship suddenly turned, but now they were aware and determined to get the cargo ship back in line or destroy her. The cargo ship, she needed a name, Bashir had said, was well shielded, but not nearly so strong in firepower. She had phasers, six banks, one to each the bow and stern and two along either side. But they were not quite a match for even the 50 ships that had broken away from the convoy to come after them. They'd been taking hits for the last 10 minutes. It had only been 20 minutes since Bashir took the helm. Shields dropping to 60%, Loris reported from Tactical. Another hit caused the bridge to tilt slightly to starboard. Minor damage to outer hull plating. So far. Comments like that aren't exactly helpful, Bashir reminded her. Riker realigned the inertial dampers while Bashir adjusted the helm and the ship righted itself. I don't even know anymore, the doctor went on. I thought they were hallucinations, but Vladia and now Shimon? I didn't just imagine my hand being broken. I was there, Riker told him, or I wouldn't believe it myself. And I wouldn't believe this either. He waved his hand around to indicate the ship. 
Except for the fact that we still have working engines, we're a sitting duck. But they haven't even pulled our shields down yet. Why do you suppose that is? Faith, Bashir asked. I just believe in those Dominion ships out there are going to stop shooting. That hasn't happened yet. And I was believing it there for a while. My hand was broken. I could feel it. He stopped and looked up from the helm. So what was he that he could do something like that? Changelings can't heal people, the last I heard. Or disappear into thin air, Riker added. Melt into the floor, perhaps, but not just wink out like that. Right, Bashir agreed. Hallucinations can't see around corners or hold open doors or heal a broken hand either. So what was he? Oropik and Cairn looked at each other and apparently decided to stay out of the debate. Jordan and the others would say he was an angel, Loris said as another hit shook the ship. Fifty-five percent. Forward shields are still a bit higher. Well, they're mostly shooting from behind us, Bashir reasoned. Let's put the difference to the aft shields and cut whatever else is unnecessary. If we can get everyone not running this ship into the hold, we can cut power to all the unused compartments. And what if I don't believe in angels or ghosts? Neither do I, Riker said as Loris motioned to Karun, who left the bridge immediately. Riker ran a quick diagnostic to see what damage they had from the last hit, but already two more struck the aft shielding. But then again, 600 years ago, they didn't believe in atoms or ions. Damn. What? Cairn asked. Bashir closed his eyes for a moment and gripped the edges of two of the columns. Long-range sensors, Riker replied, but then spoke to Bashir. You want me to take that thing for a bit? The headset Bashir was wearing was giving him a headache, something he'd said was common to every human that had tried to wear it for any length of time. Garrick, however, had had no such problems. Bashir took it off and rubbed his temple. That would be great, Commander. Just let me know if I'm about to collide with something. He tossed the headset and Riker caught it. The thought did occur to him that the ship might not survive long enough for the headset to cause him a headache. But he decided he'd rather believe Shimon was an angel and that Bashir really could save them just by believing he could. It was ridiculous, but it was the only scenario that didn't involve a fiery inferno or a recapture by the Dominion. The ship rocked again, and this time it was much more violent. Direct hit to the port lateral shield generators, Loris reported. We're losing them. Cut life support, lights, everything to everywhere we don't need people to be, Bashir ordered. See if there isn't some sort of siren to warn everyone. They've got to get out of there now. I should have something here, Laura said. Pardon my saying so, sir, but I think you need to stop being negative before they put a hole in our hull. Me? Negative? Bashir said, putting a hand to his chest in mock hurt. Nothing about this situation would logically lead to negativity, crewman. Laura smiled. Who gives a damn about logic, sir? There are no Vulcans on the bridge. I just want to survive. If that means I have to stand on my head and sing nursery rhymes, I'll do it. Bashir laughed at that. He wanted to say it would certainly be amusing, but he didn't see how it would make the Dominion stop shooting at them. But he didn't. That would be negative. Negativity was apparently not the route to salvation for the good ship, whatever her name is. But it wasn't easy being positive. He'd had a lot more experience with pessimism this last year, half year or so than optimism. And broken hand or not, the facts of the universe, or at least this quadrant, hadn't changed. The Dominion was still allied to Cardassia, and the Breen were still allied to the Dominion. And all three were still bent on taking over the Alpha Quadrant, which left the Federation all too desperate to stop them. Enter Arma Inem's sealant legis, he thought. 
Ross's words fit too well with what he saw of the Federation, and especially Section 31. They were still out there, too, and it was still apparent that they hadn't given up on him yet. One thing had changed, though. Himself. Julian Bashir no longer wanted to die. He didn't want to give up and let Section 31 make him disappear. He didn't want to sit in a pool of self-pity and wait for the universe to end. These other prisoners had seized a chance, an infinitesimal chance, at freedom, and they had fought for it with their whole beings. Many had fought the Jem'Hadar with bare hands, giving up their lives so that the others might go free. And Bashir, when his hand had knit back together in Shimon's grip, whatever he was, had started to sense that maybe there was something worth fighting for, something worth fighting the Dominion, worth fighting Section 31, worth fighting his own demons. And if Shimon was an angel, well, his demons were still right there taunting him with every shot that shook the ship and decreased the power to their shields. We're not going to survive by fighting them, was what he said instead. We need to outrun them, outlast them. Take the phasers offline, divert power to the engines. We need to keep them at our backs as much as possible. Phasers offline, Riker acknowledged, and the ship surged ahead to warp 8.6. The .3 increase in speed didn't impress the enemy, however. They were warships, and warships could almost always outrun cargo freighters. They continued to slam torpedoes against the freighter's shields, and Loris continued to report the corresponding decrease in shield strength. Faith. Shimon had said faith was how his hand was healed and faith would save the ship. Faith in what? Bashir had lost his faith a long time ago. He told Riker the only one he could trust was himself, but even that had been proven wrong when Deus ordered the breaking of his hand. He could not even control himself. How then could he have trust in himself? In others, then? He could no more trust them than himself. The Federation? The Federation included Section 31. The Christian God? He wasn't even ready to believe that such a thing existed. Shimon and his kind? He wasn't yet sure what they were, and if he didn't believe in God, he had a hard time believing in angels or ghosts. And yet, Captain Sisko had had visions of the prophets. Visions, though. Visions couldn't touch a person. There was a terrible concussion that rang in his ears, and he was thrown to the deck. We've lost forward shields, Loris reported as she picked herself up and worked her console. We've got nothing else to sacrifice at this point. Except my doubts, Bashir thought. Klaxons were blaring, red lights flashed on and off, and the deck continued to pitch with each new hit. He used the edge of the console to pull himself up. The engines were holding it warp 8.6. By his estimates, they would reach the edge of the Denexi lines in two hours. They just had to remain in one piece. Is there any power allocated to communications? He asked. We can do without that. Hard to port, Riker exclaimed, and Bashir obeyed without waiting for an explanation. You were right about this headset. Riker's head would be pounding by now. Let me know when I can get us back on course, Bashir said. Starboard, Riker replied. They're all around us like a swarm of bees. I don't suppose we can just stay on course and see if they flinch first, Aura Pick suggested. Cardassians, maybe, Bashir told her, but not Jemadar, unless they've got a changeling on board. Another explosion caused consoles and displays to spark on the bridge, though thankfully the helm remained functional. Won't matter now, Riker said. He took off the headset and threw it to the floor. Sensors are gone. They were flying blind. The phrase, blind faith, sprang to Bashir's mind. 
It seemed appropriate to the circumstances. Maybe he didn't need to think so hard or so big. Maybe all he had to have faith in was the challenge set before him. Believe, Shimon had said, or they will all die. And Bashir realized something. Faith was a choice. He didn't want to die, and he didn't want all the other prisoners to die, so he would choose to believe. They were going to make it. Find me every ounce of energy you can, Mr. Loris, he said. We are not done with this yet. With no sensors? she asked, letting her own doubt win. We know what's out there, Bashir answered. They haven't rammed us yet. Maybe they do have founders on board. We're going to keep running until we reach the Federation fleet. She nodded crisply. Aye, sir. With each new hit against the aft shields or hole plating, Bashir chose faith again. He kept telling himself they would make it. He could tell when the aft shielding fell by the intensity of the jolt that pushed him forward into the helm. Loris and Riker didn't say anything, but worked to reroute whatever power remained from the shields to the engines. Bashir pushed her up to warp 8.8. Then he had an idea. He checked their position against the star charts and dropped to warp 7, hoping none of the ships chasing them were right behind them. When the freighter didn't explode, he dropped out of warp altogether. And as soon as the ship settled into impulse, he plotted a new course, 35 degrees to starboard, and went again to warp. For four minutes, not a single shot fell on the bridge. Whatever you did, Riker said during the lull, I like it. I just bought us some time, Bashir replied, relaxing for the first time since before Formenos had been brought aboard. He wondered why they hadn't found her, but he had an idea where she might have gone. They'll be back, so what will we name her? If she doesn't get, Loris started. She won't, Bashir interrupted. Go on. Maybe freedom, she suggested. Freedom sounds good to me, Riker agreed. They both sat on the floor in front of the darkened tactical station. Freedom it is, then, Bashir said. And just like that, the moment was over. A jolt shook the bridge, and he was pushed hard into the helm again. He knew he couldn't trick them for long. Their long-range sensors would have picked freedom up again instantly. He set his course back to the Denexi lines. The previous change had gained them four minutes of quiet, but it had added light years to their course. It would still take nearly two hours to reach the fleet he hoped was still there. Another hit and Bashir lost helm control. He could feel the ship slow to impulse. Then it stopped completely. I've lost the helm, he told the others. The engines are down. But strangely, the firing stopped. Sensors? Bashir asked, and Riker jumped up to reroute the power that had been al allocated to the engines. They're weak, he reported. Three ships approaching within 100 meters. I can't make out their configurations. Why aren't they trying to board us? Loris asked, looking over his shoulder. Life support is down almost everywhere but the bridge and cargo hold, Riker explained. I'm sure even Jem'Hadar need air to breathe. The hold's too crowded, Bashir said, thankful for their numbers. Anybody would have to be insane to try and beam into the middle of 6,000 people and expect to take over. There's engineering, Oropik pointed out. They're armed down there, Riker countered. They can fight there as well as we can here. Loris nodded and put her attention back to the sensor readings. She slapped the console a few times as it dimmed. We lost the sensors again, she complained, but I saw something just before that. Life support has been reinitialized on every deck. Maybe they are going to board, Riker concluded. Bashir turned so he could sit and lean back on the helm consoles. He rubbed his hands over his face and wondered what he was supposed to believe now. 
The odds were against them, but he was supposed to believe they would still make it. Maybe the armed prisoners could fight off the borders and the engineers could find some way to get freedom moving again before the next round of borders. And maybe the Federation fleet had won at Denexi, which prompted the liquidation of the camp and the convoy headed deeper into Dominion space. Maybe the Federation was chasing the convoy. Maybe freedom was closer than they thought. Can you get us a feed to the cargo hold, he asked. Riker knelt in front of the communications console and reconnected the cables he'd pulled apart before. Instantly, the console came to life and began beeping. He stood and examined the readings there. That's sporting of them, he commented. Someone's hailing. Signal's weak, though. I can't say who is calling, and I don't think we could answer if we tried. What about the hold? Bashir repeated. If most of our people are down there, so are most of our weapons. Riker shrugged. You think anybody down there knows Morse code? Jordan heard the tapping and quietly left the circle. The large screen on the forward wall had come on, but there was no picture. The tapping, though, was coming from there. He ended up standing next to Karun. You know Morse code? The Cassellian asked him. Jordan shook his head, but Bastino spoke from the other side of Karun. Weapons to take positions, he said, reading the dots and dashes in the taps. He turned to face them. We're being boarded. Then let's do what it says, Jordan said. He pushed through the crowd to stand under the screen. The hold had quieted down when the ship stopped, so they had no trouble hearing him now. Pass all weapons to the front, he shouted. We need to fight for this ship. We are being boarded. Many of those in front were already armed, and they came out to stand by Jordan. The others further back either pushed to the front or passed their weapons forward to someone further up. There had been approximately 150 Jem'Hadar on the ship, each armed with at least a rifle and handgun. Some had also carried knives. That meant about 300 armed prisoners. When about 50 had gathered at the front, he took them into the cargo lift, leaving Festino and Karun to gather more. Jordan would take his 50 to fan out on deck A. Festino and Karun would follow on B and C decks. The lifts opened on A, and Jordan led his group out. They split into groups of five and spread themselves out. He ended up near an intersection where he could see the entrance to the bridge and Carrie's group beyond that. They didn't have to wait long. Five shapes glittered into existence ten meters aft of Jordan's position. Behind us, he ordered as he ran back there. They each took aim on one of the materializing figures, but lowered their weapons when they saw who had boarded their ship. Jordan? Captain Sisko said, obviously surprised. I'm not as dead as you think I am, Jordan replied, smiling broadly. It is very good to see you again, sir. You are an answer to prayer. You know this man, the balding captain next to Sisko said. Sorry, Sisko apologized. Lieutenant Jordan, this is Captain Picard, Commander Data, and Dr. Crusher of the Enterprise. Jordan shook hands with each of them. Data was not overly tall, but very pale with gold eyes. Crusher had red hair and a friendly face. Then he turned to the short, dark-headed trill lieutenant beside Sisko. I'm Esri Dax, he said, and Jordan paused. Esri? he asked, not extending his hand. Dax was a tall, confident science officer. What happened to Jadzia? Esri offered him a gentle smile. She died nearly a year ago. I'm Dax's new host. I'm sure this is quite a shock, but we'll need to discuss it some other time. We scanned this ship, Picard said. You have over 6,000 on board. No Jem'Hadar or Vorta? Esri was right. Jadzia would have to wait. We took the ship, Jordan said with pride. There are no Dominion personnel on board anymore. Are you in charge then? 
Data asked. Jordan grinned. No, sir, he said. I think you need to speak to our captain. Myers can take the doctor to the wounded. We could certainly use her help. Picard nodded and Myers led Crusher aft. Is anyone else beaming aboard? Jordan asked, hoping he could tell the others to stand down. Not at this time, Sisko replied. Holman obviously had similar thoughts. I'll let the others know, she volunteered. Jordan let her go and led the other four to the bridge. It's Jordan, he called as the door began to open. It was good that he had, because at least three of the people on the bridge were armed and their weapons were being lowered by the time the doorway fully opened. It's Jordan, came the voice from the corridor, and Riker motioned that the others should lower their weapons. Bashir had kept up the silent mantra as he stood behind Riker on the now useless bridge. He let himself sigh when he heard Jordan's voice, but kept up the mantra in his head. He didn't want his doubt to win out and cost them all their lives. But when the door opened, he let the mantra go. It had worked. Number one, Captain Picard exclaimed as he stepped through the door. I should have known you'd be in charge here. I'm not, Riker replied and turned to the side. He is. He held his hand toward Bashir, who felt a little out of rank. Behind Picard was a familiar face, one he had once looked up to and recently looked down upon. Now it attempted to fill him with pride, even as it regarded him warily. Well, Bashir said, you have good timing, I'll give you that. He was puzzled by his own feelings at seeing Captain Sisko. When Sisko had met him at the airlock on DS9, Bashir had felt like the deck under his feet had flipped upside down. But now, on this battered cargo freighter, he felt solid. Sisko had come, and they would survive. I'll take that as a compliment, Sisko replied. One more hit might have done you in. He stepped out of the way, and Esri and Data appeared behind him. Esri didn't look as happy to see him as he felt seeing her. She looked worried, and maybe a little disgusted. Are you all right, Julian? She asked, and Bashir remembered his clothes were covered in blood and grime. I haven't been, he admitted, but I feel much better now. He forgot about his filthy clothes and embraced what he was feeling. Welcome to the Federation ship freedom, he said, knowing that he meant it. Epilogue Bashir welcomed Data on board as well and thanked Picard for offering to tractor the freedom back to Starbase 186. But otherwise, he left them with Riker to coordinate the transfer of wounded to the surrounding Federation and Romulan ships. How many, he asked Captain Sisko when they found a moment of quiet. The main body of the fleet dispersed, Sisko told him. Only 206 stayed with us to chase the Dominion back. Then it was lucky for you we happened along, Bashir said. There were 300 in the convoy when we turned the ship around. Only 50 or so broke off to chase us. Sisko smirked at that. Then he blew out his breath. I still don't understand how the ship is still in one piece. Bashir knew, but he still didn't quite understand. He looked for Esri and found her talking with Jordan. Captain, he said, turning back to Sisko, would you walk with me? Sisko seemed unsure but nodded. Bashir led the way but stopped just before the door. Oh, you have the bridge, Mr. Riker. Riker looked up and waved with a smile. Aye, Captain. I thought you had resigned, Sisko said as they stepped into the corridor. Commander Riker thought I was safer in uniform than out, Bashir admitted. Besides, I've been thinking I might like to stay in Starfleet a bit longer. They passed the corridor where Crusher and several nurses were tending the remaining wounded. She was busy with her work and paid the two captains no attention. Bashir was finding it rather enjoyable being captain of his own ship, even if only for a day. But he really wanted to get back to doing what she was doing. A transfer then, Sisko asked. Bashir shook his head as they walked to the next door and stopped. 
I don't think I'll need one, he answered. He touched the panel beside the door. It opened and he faced his own failure once again. He stepped aside so Cisco could see and took a deep breath. I killed them, he said finally. I could only think of one thing, no more pain. They were causing me pain or threatening it, so I killed them. I don't understand, Cisco said, stepping back so the door would close. He turned to face Bashir, but I'm glad they're dead and not you. Bashir watched his face, his eyes, to see if that was true. Was the defiant ordered to Denexi? he asked. No, Cisco replied, shaking his head. We were ordered to find the Dnieper, Riker's runabout. We found it with your clothes aboard. We came to Denexi looking for you. We just happened to run into a battle. Bashir could no find no trace of insincerity in his eyes. Cisco really had taken the Defiant into the battle to find him. I told the senior staff, Cisco went on, except for Odo. You can talk to Ezri now. Bashir had mixed feelings about that. A weight lifted off his shoulders just knowing he didn't have to hide Cisco's secret anymore, but now Ezri and the others were accessories like him. What you did, he said, is still wrong, but so is this. They were the enemy, but that wasn't a battle. I could have taken a rifle from the first one to fall, but I wanted to use the knife. I wanted them to bleed and hurt like they'd hurt me. But more than anything, I just wanted them to stop hurting me. He took another breath, and Sisko waited for him to continue. I can understand why you may have done what you did. Anyway, you asked how he managed, he told his captain. They broke my hand in that room. Then a dead man healed it and said I had to believe or we'd all die. Sisko dropped his eyebrows at that ludicrous explanation, and Bashir wanted to laugh with him, but Sisko didn't laugh. You almost did anyway, he said instead. Bashir nodded. Except that you showed up with such impeccable timing. So you see, Captain, you managed it after all. You restored my faith. Sisko was quiet for a moment. Then he let out his own breath and relaxed his shoulders. Let's go home then. You can get cleaned up on the Defiant. Bashir smiled and let the dream of a shower and a soft bunk wash through him for a moment. He was suddenly very tired and quite hungry. But he started back for the bridge. No, thank you, sir, he said, smiling through a yawn. This is my ship, and I'll see her home. Besides, I dare say it will be quite a while before I captain a ship again. Sisko smiled, too, and clapped a hand gently on his shoulder. Maybe not as long as you think. Eline? Her eyes shifted, but they couldn't see, not even the blurry shapes they had made out before. It was Fenner's voice, though, and she wondered if she had died, too. She felt no pain, so that fit her theory, but she wondered why she could hear and not see. Eline, it's Wilhelm. Try not to move too much. We're going to help you. Help? Move? Maybe she wasn't dead after all. She flexed the fingers of her right hand experimentally. Pain shot through her fingers and sped up her arm. Without meaning to, she let out a cry. She heard a slight splash and felt a hand on her arm. Maybe Bashir had returned. I think I'm delirious, she told him. No, Fenner's voice replied. Try this. Cool, soft liquid dripped into her right eye and then her left. She wanted to blink, but she could not get her eyes to close. After a few seconds, though, her vision began to clear. She saw a ceiling in Finner's face above her. The ceiling was fuzzy to her eyes, but Finner was clear enough, though the room they were in was not well lit. She looked down and saw her own body covered in a milky liquid. 
It dulls the pain, Fenner said, and keeps you from infection. Lie still and let it soothe you. It was already doing that. Her hands didn't burn if she didn't move them. You see, you're going to be fine. Then there was another voice. Ah, I see our patient has woken up. A woman's voice, one Fermenos thought she had heard before. A dark head appeared opposite Fenner's. Dayton, Fermenos whispered in her surprise. How nice of you to remember me, Dayton said. Eline, would you like to have a face again? That had quite a bit more of an upbeat <laughs> tone to it than the rest of the story did, didn't it? It was really kind of fun to read. I I, I really liked, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how in the world this faith thing is supposed to work. What are the, you know, Vladia and, and Shimon? And <laughs> they're going through all that. And I liked Loris's comment about, you know, he said, you know, if you're supposed to believe, I, I you know, if it was up to me and I had to like, sing nursery rhymes, I would do it because you wanted to live. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. It was, it was fun banter to write and it was fun to just go with it. That what Shimon said, have faith or they will all die. So he just had faith. They were going to make it. They were going to make it. They were going to make it. And he just, you know, had that as his mantra until Cisco and the others showed up. So pretty, pretty fun ending, I thought. It, it does present an up. It doesn't solve everything. It doesn't give a happy ending, but it gives a very up ending. And then there's the thing with Eline there at the end, in the second scene of the epilogue. Eline for Menos with Dayton and Fenner. So Dayton got Fenner out before he died, even though she got caught. They got her out, Section 31 did, and they got Fermenos. So I guess Elina is being recruited and hey, she's got a, you know something special going on. She can wear different faces. So that could come in handy in Section 31. The question is, is she willing to be part of Section 31? Maybe to have a face and skin on her hands. So, turned out better for her than it did poor Caldea Matingua. Remember back in episode, I believe it was seven. It might have been episode six when I talked about being evil. <laughs> I told you, writers, to not be afraid to be evil. Jerk your readers around, tug on their heartstrings, make them laugh, make them cry, make them stay up all night because they can't put your story down. Yeah, I'm evil. I admit it. <laughs> But I do classify my evil in two categories. One is good evil. If you've done it right, they thank you for it. The readers will thank you. They will enjoy it. They will stay up all night. They will skip work, not do their homework. <laughs> they will do all that <laughs> to keep reading your story. And they'll thank you for it. 
If you do it wrong, they hate you. So don't do it wrong. Make them love you. <laughs> but be evil. It is fun and kind of like educational to take a character and put them through the ringer. And what do I mean educational? I wrote about a fire in the chest. Anger, like a fire in the chest before I felt it. And I remember when I did feel it going, whoa, I was right. So, or the magic was. <laughs> so I made a decision when I wrote that, that that would be an accurate depiction of this anger. And I hadn't felt it at the time, but I felt it later. So, yeah. And if you've been through things that cause trauma, writing scenes that are similar can also help you work through some of that trauma. Putting characters through trauma and having them react with trauma has helped me through my trauma. It's like experiencing it in a safe way. And I think kind of that's what therapy does. So writing can be a form of therapy. And so can reading. Sometimes we read to escape, but sometimes we read to validate. To validate what we've gone through or what we feel. And I think that's one reason why there is so much slash fan fiction. You know, people want to see themselves, see that gay people exist, that trans people exist. And so if the media will not show them that, they will write them into it. And that's great. That's great for religions. It's great for races. It's great for nationalities. Star Trek TOS, when it came out, had a black woman with an African name as part of the senior staff. They also had a Russian on board in a time of Cold War. And he spoke with a very Russian accent. There was an Asian after the war with Japan. There was an Asian man. So there was something about, you know, it was something about Gene Roddenberry's um, outlook on things, but, you know, that by then humanity would have improved. But um, it helped people to see themselves in the future. 
and to see how humans can get along with each other um, and with other races even, other species rather, you know, Spock. So it was also just about storytelling, but I think that that was part of Gene Bar Roddenberry's uh, take on it to have that inclusion, have that representation. And has not Nichelle Nichols done so much for women and black women in NASA? She has. So it's, you know, not just there. And then George Takei came out, out of the closet. And he has been a voice for other LGBTQ people. And now on Discovery, we have a gay couple and we have a trans person and a non-binary person. So inclusion and a black woman as captain. That's pretty cool. And Tignatero as uh, Reno, and she's, she's gay too. So inclusion. There's a lot of women in, on Discovery. Back in TOS, you only had one in the senior staff and the other was a nurse or typical or secretary. So typical feminine, stereotypical feminine professions. But in later shows, we start to see more women. But in Discovery, there's a lot of women. And even Lower Decks. Lower Decks has a black woman captain and Mariner <laughs> and Tendi, who is an Orion female. There's inclusion, and I've loved that about Star Trek. It does show a more positive future for humanity, and that's why I... You know, that's why I love Idic. Infinite diversity and infinite combinations. We should embrace that as Trekkers. We should embrace that as humans. Because hate has never looked good on any of us. So I would like to see more of that in the future. Let's get that idic, idic, not idig, idic, I-D-I-C, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Let's get that outside of Star Trek. Let's get that out there in the world. There have been tragedies in the United States of late. 
people filled with hate who take guns and go kill other people, sometimes children. What did those children do to deserve to die? But then there's what's going on in Ukraine as well. There's political parties built on hate that are gaining a certain amount of popularity in several countries, maybe too many. And I hate to see any part of Europe going back anywhere close to the fascists. What Germany did in World War II is the epitome of horrible. And to think that any country in Europe would, that any political party of any in Europe would be like, yeah, we want to be like that. That just, oh, that hurts. It just hurts. And it should hurt. 11 million people were killed in the Nazi genocide machine. That's not including those who died in battle. Which was thousands, hundreds of thousands, I would imagine. Nothing good came out of the Nazis. Why would you want to be like them? And then the KGB, Putin used to be in the KGB, and now he's got power in Russia. He's had power in Russia for generations now, and he doesn't seem to be ready to let go, and now he wants to take over Ukraine, and atrocities are happening there. And it's terrible. Here it is, the 21st century, and we're dealing with war crimes again. That's sad. <sighs> Fan fiction and writing in general can help us escape from these things, but they can also help us highlight them. They can help us share the communal trauma of it all and work through it. Or shine a spotlight on it. I really hope that the rest of this year and the next year, we see the United States moving towards something more positive. I hope that for other countries as well. I would like to get to the point where we have a peace throughout the world. That would be nice. It's asking a lot, but... I'd like to get there. All right, well, until I get uh, 
an idea of what to talk about or somebody to talk to, this podcast is now going on hiatus. I might call it the end of the season if it goes on long enough and just when I do start, start with season nine. I hope you have enjoyed Faith. I hope you enjoyed the finale and the epilogue. Um, I hope that after all that uh, drama, it put a smile on your face. I did say that it was going to get worse before it get be got better, and it got better last episode, but it got a lot better in this episode. And that is the end of the Faith Trilogy. All right. It was good talking to you, and I look forward to doing this again, hopefully in the near future. If you'd like to reach me to chat, ask me questions, tell me about you know, what you thought of these stories, email me or tweet me. My email address is inhildi at gmail.com. That's I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I. And my Twitter is at inhildi, spelled the same way. Bye for now.